Please join me for a word of prayer as we remain standing. Oh God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will. Set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. And please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King this morning. We're in a sermon series titled Resurrection and. We've been looking at different implications of the resurrection. We're in the season of Easter, and so... Uh, this subject, this morning we come to the subject of the resurrection and the subject of race. And a little disclaimer, there'll be more about that, that latter subject, race, than about the former subject of its implications as tied to the resurrection. And then one more uh, uh, caveat before we begin. Actually, two more caveats. Second caveat is we usually spend just a time on one particular passage. We'll open up one particular verse and spend time focused on that, seeing what it says and how it applies. Uh, this will be a little bit different, and it's more of a topical study on that subject. Third and final caveat before we jump in is that most of my sermons are about 2,000 words long. This one is just a little bit longer, so I'll try to talk faster, all right? <laughs> Ethnicity, race, it's an important subject these days, and, and just frustratingly so. It seems like this should be something that's uh, been part of our ancient, should be part of our ancient history. It's not. And the Bible has something to teach us about it, and what the Bible says we want to be faithful to listen to and to apply. In my preparation this Sunday, I made a, a little discovery that I found to be very helpful. I hope it's helpful for you as well. And the distinction is between the words ethnicity and race. Ethnicity, I hear those, and I think they're basically synonyms. Uh, they're one way of saying, two ways of saying the same basic thing. I don't think that's the case. I hope that we'll come to the conclusion that ethnicity is something that's good, something that God intended. Race, ee, boy, that's, that's a categorization that's a little bit more fraught. All right? So we're going to look at those two categories, ethnicity and race, and we're just going to tease out some implications of what those words mean. All right. So what is ethnicity? An ethnic group is a group of people who identify with one another based upon similar, similar location, common language, common religion, even a common form of governance. And you can imagine that race and ethnicity have some overlap. People in different parts of the globe uh, look similar to one another and can look different from others. However, those are not synonymous terms. Ethnicity is part of God's plan. Ethnicity is something he wove into creation. And you find this all the way back in the very beginning of the Bible. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2. You, I don't think you should try to follow along with me because we'll be bouncing around quite a bit. But in this idyllic scene of the garden, we have hints of cultures and uh, peoples outside of uh, the immediate focus of that text. For instance, we read that a river flowed out of Eden. This is in chapter 2, verse 10 of Genesis. A river flowed out of Eden and water and out from Eden it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flowed, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And it continues on and on, which each of these four rivers winding their way to a, a new location and a little brief description about each one of those locations. 
one commentator writes, there is a hint of cultural development intended for man when the narrative momentarily breaks out of Eden to open a vista into the world of diverse countries. Right? So the, the picture, uh, a movie director, the, the, the focus is all on Eden, and then it pans out, and you begin to see just the hint of diverse peoples outside. Right? Further, the Old Testament is full of hints that all ethnicities will one day are invited to and will one day praise God. So this from Psalm 117, verse 1. This is a common theme throughout all the scriptures. But Psalm 117 says, Praise the Lord, all you nations. What's interesting is that word nations uh, is the word ethnos, from which we get the word ethnicity. Obviously, ancient people didn't have the same states and borders that we have today. So the word ethnicity is the word that's been translated to nations. Let every people group praise the Lord. And what's so compelling about this passage is that the Psalm 117 does not say let all ethnicities become one ethnicity and then praise God. Instead, it says let all each unique individual ethnic group join in the praise of God. Very important. We begin to see this kaleidoscope of praise. Again, uh, let me back up. So the Bible does not envision a homogenous, monochromatic praise from people. It envisions a kaleidoscope of praise. Different people, different nations, different, all joining in the praise of God. It's a very compelling image. And we begin to see this image, this rea uh, captured in the book of Acts. You heard in our gospel reading that uh, the disciples are to go into all nations. And that's exactly what happens in uh, the, early, the history of the early church as recorded in Acts. The church spread past its cultural origins, its ethnic origins. Those origins were, of course, very Jewish. Jewish. Jesus' 12 disciples were Jewish. Jesus, Jesus himself was Jewish. The good news that Jesus died for sinners spread from that little community, that ethnic group, to a new ethnic community, that being Rome. New ethnicity, new people. One of the most significant questions that the early church wrestled with, there's actually only one council. You know, you hear about church councils, like groups of churches getting together for some large council. There's one council that's mentioned in the book of Acts, in the early church. Only one council, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 15. Do you have any suspicion as what the council was called to debate? That council was called to debate just how Jewish do these Romans need to be before they can become Christians? Make sense? It's a big deal, and it was a big question. For instance, circumcision, a Jewish rite, part of the Jewish culture, was a big question. Well, the answer to that question of how Jewish do Romans need to be before they can become Christian, the answer to that question was not very. Right? Now, the church has obviously spread from Rome to, you know, all points of the globe. But to simplify things, let's just say the church spread from Rome to the British Isles, from the British Isles to America, from America to Africa. And in each moment, in each new culture, the same question, how much does this, does this new culture, this new ethnicity, need to be like the old one in order to be a follower of Jesus? Answer, not very. Laman Sana, 
I'm not sure I pronounced his name right, Laman Sana, was a professor at Yale. Born in Gambia, he wrote a book entitled, Whose Religion is Christianity? Who does Christianity belong to? He writes this, as the Christianity impacted his own Gambian culture. He writes, Africans best responded to Christianity where the indigenous religions were strongest, not the weakest, suggesting a degree of compatibility with the gospel. People sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or, clamor, or their clamor for an invincible savior. So they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. Concluding, movingly, Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. It's our reading from the New Testament which puts the final period on this sentence. It's the one image of the resurrection that we'll touch on. It's the very beautiful image of our eternal home in which all the nations come and present their gifts before the one king. All the different nations will sing this, and Isaac Watts' great hymn will conclude our service, and we'll sing, Jesus shall reign over where... Uh, that's the first verse. The last verse says that every creature will rise and bring honor and glory to the king. The original version of Isaac Watts' hymn was, every creature will rise and bring peculiar offerings to the king. Peculiar, not meaning weird. Peculiar meaning unique. Each nation, each culture bringing its own gifts before the king, a great kaleidoscope of praise. And it's a very compelling image. So are we on the same page? Ethnicity is something that God has woven into his creation. It's something unavoidable. And it's something that he intends for his good. Yes, every culture must be redeemed. Yes, there are blind spots that we all have. But God's vision is of a kaleidoscope of praise from all different nations. Now, ethnicity does not come without its challenges. We all sort of clump together in like-minded clusters. This is from an article in 2008, which highlights some of our, the, the danger of our proclivity to sort of clump together. The author writes, for example, someone who works in D.C., but wants to live in a suburb, can commute either from Maryland or Northern Virginia. Both states have equally leafy streets and good schools, but Virginia has plenty of conservative neighborhoods and megachurchs and bushites. Remember, 2008. It's a decade ago, by the way. Ten years. Uh, in the posh suburbs of Maryland, by contrast, Republicans are rare as an unkept lawn. We live in a giant feedback loop, the author continues. We hear our own thoughts about what's right and what's wrong, bounced back to us by television shows we watch, the newspapers, the books, the neighborhoods, even the preaching that we listen to. 
And one result of this feedback loop, one result of this insularity that we all, it's a natural tendency, like attracts to like, and within reason that's not entirely bad, but one of the result of unchecked insularity is we begin to be more assured of our own perspective and more dubious of everybody else. After all, everybody looks like us and talks like us and thinks what like us, and they don't. And so we become a little bit more confident in who we are and what we think is right and a little bit more dubious of anyone that doesn't. And we can think of plenty of examples of this. Matter of fact, there's plenty in the Bible. Peter, the first great disciple, the first great apostle, was guilty of the same thing. He withdrew from a group of Roman Christians. Peter was a Jewish man, and there was an opportunity to be in fellowship with people of a different ethnicity, and he backed away, and he was rebuked for it. And this is recorded in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. Yet this danger, this danger of insularity and the potential pride that it can engender in ourselves and suspicion towards other does not eradicate this original point that ethnicity is part of God's created order. You can't do away with it. And it's something that he intended for good. All right? Let's turn to a more difficult subject, that of race. I found the history of the use of that term, race, to be very helpful. And I draw heavily from Albert Thompson, who is a member of our vestry and a historian who's done a lot of work on this subject. The term race, you may be surprised to find, is never found in the Bible. You'll search in vain for that categorization of people in terms of race. It just does not exist. The term race first occurred in the year 1500, or 15th century, and it originated in Spain. Now, just a quick historical background. Spain had been part of the Islamic empire for about 700 years. The last uh, remaining Islamic stronghold in Spain fell in 1492. Keep that date in mind, because other things happened in 1492 as well. So, after 700 years of Islamic rule, the new leaders, that being Ferdinand and Isabel, were left with the question of loyalty. How do you know that these people are going to be for you? Is it a matter just of a similar culture or a similar language? A new term emerged. A new term, a litmus test for loyalty. And that term has had sobering implications. The term was purity of blood. You can trace the implications of a genetic test for purity. Very sobering. But the question was of loyalty. And so there was those who were pure and those who were impure. So tease out the implications of this. How, who are you? How is your identity created? Not on the basis of ethnicity, which is your location, your language, your religion, your culture. But now a new category emerges that held holds more sway, race, purity of blood, genetics. And therefore, someone living in Spain in 1492, although they had pledged loyalty to the crown, although they may have converted to Christianity, although they may be ethnically Spanish, was suspect, potentially discriminated against, potentially persecuted. And this happened on the basis of their purity of their blood. 1492. What else happens in 1492? 
Columbus sells the ocean blue. And what does Columbus discover when he sails the ocean blue? And I admit this history that I'm giving is a very succinct history, so bear with me. In 1492, Columbus sails the ocean blue and discovers new lands with untold resources full of people who look very different. Untapped resources, untold resources available in this new world. And it is much easier to justify exploitation and justify enslavement if the people whom you are exploiting and enslaving are not just human beings of a different ethnicity, but a different type of human being altogether. Human beings with different blood, a different race, different humans. Again, to quote uh, Albert, he summarizes this tragic development by saying, the emergence of race should be understood as an ex post facto, that means after the fact, an ex post facto justification for exploitation, an excuse for a behavior that should be condemned. And this tragic development of race as a categorization is all the more tragic because this development was fully and roundly condemned almost immediately. Writing in 1537, very shortly after this new categorization emerged, Pope Pius III writes this, the enemy of the human race, that being the devil, who opposes all good deeds in order to bring men to destruction, invented a means never before heard of by which he might hinder the preaching of God's word, the salvation of people. He, being the devil, has not hesitated to publish abroad that the Indians of the West and the South and the other people of whom we have recent knowledge should be treated as dumb brutes, something other than us, created for our service, pretending that they are incapable of receiving the Catholic faith. That was written in 1537. He identifies racial categorization as a tool of the devil almost immediately after this categorization emerged. But this condemnation went largely unheeded in light of the potential and the reality of tremendous financial gain. So what happens? What happens when you take our unavoidable and not altogether bad proclivity to kind of cluster together in like minded groups. And you add to this proclivity a new category, more comprehensive than ethnicity, that being race, which tells us that we're not the same human beings with different cultural backgrounds, but we're different human beings entirely. What do you get? Well, you have a very, very sad history. You have a transatlantic trade of approximately 10 million human beings. A civil war which killed close to 3% of the population. A long and protracted struggle for civil rights. And an enduring legacy of division that is still sadly present today. Let me summarize. Ethnicity is one category. Yes we should be mindful of our tendency to clump together in like-minded groups. 
However, ethnicity is part of our created nature. We are from different cultures, different people with different traditions, and this kaleidoscope was God's idea. The category of race, which categorizes people according to a purity of blood expressed in physical appearances, genetic purity, is found nowhere in the Bible. It appears in 1500, in the 15th century. And then racial categorization, by which some were deemed as fundamentally different, was recognized by the leader of the Catholic Church as a new and invented means of hindering God's word, invented by the enemy of our souls, that being the devil. Ethnic distinctions are from God. Racial distinctions, categorizations, are not. I hope you find that a helpful framework I have. Let me offer four, and this is obviously a subject that is still very much alive, frustratingly so. Let me offer four tentative suggestions by way of application. The first is, because ethnicity is good and part of God's plan, you should know yours. Part of my ethnic background is Swedish. That's where I get my height from. All my immediate family is like six foot barely. You have to go over to Sweden and you finally find someone that I can look eye to eye with. Part of my family growing up, we would have Swedish meatballs, and we, my, we had those little gnomes that you put around, and we'd read books about gnomes and those little horses that you stuck the candle, the Swedish horses. And I, was, I went to the Swedish embassy, and you know the people who worked there look all like my grandfather. Actually, my grandfather immigrated. Uh, my great-grandfather immigrated as Ulström, a good Swedish name. They couldn't pronounce his name at Ellis Island, so they changed it to Clark, a much more... Ethnicity, it's a part of you. You can't deny it. To say you're not part of a cultural tradition is just to ignore reality. Know your ethnic background. It's kind of fun. And these are parts of your identity. Don't ignore it. Celebrate it. It's good. Not perfect, but good. But, second point, your ethnicity, which is good, is not the only ethnicity which is good. So expand yourself. Expand your, eye, your, your horizons. Travel. Become aware of different the different cultures that, we, that occupy our globe. Have you seen the movie Black Panther? Among other things, it's a great action movie, and I know all of my movie quotes are pretty banal. I just go to movies for amusement solely. I don't want any like deep plots. I just want to be entertained. So all my movie references are of that ilk. Sorry. Black Panther, among other things, it's a great celebration of a culture. The African culture, it's not my culture. But it's a great culture. Expand your horizons. I found it helpful to at least try to read the headlines of uh, that, a, a magazine that covers world events. I find that if I read The Economist and quote, people just think I'm smarter as well. <laughs> but did you see, we all can be sort of insular. And the more insular we become, the more dubious we become, the more sure we become of ourselves, the more... Enough said. Third, 
And now a little bit more pointed into the issues around race. In the wake of ugly racial events of the past few years, I've heard a number of people, a number of pastors calling for repentance, a repentance for things of the past. And that, that may be warranted. I have personally not found that a compelling admonition. I think we have a better word in our Christian, Christian vocabulary, and that is uh, lament. Lament rather than repent. If you have something for which you're guilty, by all means, repent. But you don't need to be guilty to be sad. Lament's a good word. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's good for us to be sad about things that we're not directly responsible for. And as we see these um, events of, of that have just racial energy behind them of Starbucks and, um, well, you know the news just as well as I do. I, I want to encourage you to have some space in your heart for lament. Before you jump to, well, I wonder what they were doing. I wonder what they were saying. I wonder what they deserved. I wonder who the, the bartender or the barista was. How about some good old-fashioned lamentation? Lament more than repent. Finally, if you see something, say something. Sadly, racial division, a tool of the enemy, a tool of the enemy of our souls, to quote Pius III, is still very much in use. Now, I don't know about you, but I have not personally witnessed that many displays of overt racial discrimination. Maybe your story is a little different. I have witnessed a few. A couple of years ago, waiting in line uh, to get my car washed at Mr. Clean on Mount Vernon Avenue, uh, the man in front of me waiting to pay the Hispanic cashier said a racial slur, loud enough for certainly for me to hear and for everybody else. And you've had these moments, I'm sure, where you think, I should say something, I should say something, and the words just don't come out. And I really regret that no words came out. Think of Martin Luther King Jr. who said, in the struggle against segregation, we will not remember the shouts of our enemies as much as the silence of our friends. So I, I hope the next time I see something, I will say something. I hope the same is true for you. So four points of application. Ethnicity is good, so know yours. What are the cultural traditions that make you you? Yours is not the only ethnicity that is good, so know others. Our response to the history of racism and the current expressions of racism, I hope for us, is one of lament. If you are things of which you must repent, by all means, repent. But you don't need to be guilty, personally guilty, to be personally sad. Finally, Racism, that tool of the enemy of our souls, is still in use today. So if you see something, say something. These are still issues that are alive today. They are issues that our culture is wrestling with, and they are problems. 
They're not the only problems we face, nor are they the biggest problems our culture faces, but they are, in fact, real problems. And what the Bible says about these current concerns, we should seek to know and strive to faithfully apply. Please rise.